0: Hi, everyone, it's Chris Licerenco from Revolutions per Movie. The show is a completely independent affair, so if you feel like supporting the show, the best way is to go over to patreoncom Revolutions per Movie, where in exchange for your support, you can get weekly bonus Revolution per Movie episodes, stickers, membership cards. Upcoming guests include Ann Magnuson of Bongwater, Bob Burt of Sonic Youth and Pussy Galore, Jerry Kosali of Devo, and Homer Flynn of the Cryptic Corporation representing the band The Residents. So please consider supporting the show over at patreon.com slash revolutionspermovie. And thank you everyone for listening. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Revolutions Per Movie. This week, we continue our talk with filmmaker and musician Dave Marquis on Devo's The Men Who Make the Music. Last week, we stopped at the absurd talk of bands that were trying to cash in on Devo's 1980 it sound. So let's start there enjoy were there any bands that tried to ape devo's sound or energy that you think succeeded
1: there were a couple things that k-rock would play i don't even remember the names of the artists but there were some bands that were clearly trying for that freedom of choice sound uh I wish I could remember the name of the band, but their song was called UFO. It's a UFO. <laughs> um, oh, have you ever heard the Village People album?
0: Uh, 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 oh, God, what's it called? Is it a later one? A later one?
1: Yeah. No. It's it's, it's this crazy 1980, 81 Village People album where they try to re-image themselves. And on, on the album cover, art, they look like they're trying to be Spandau Ballet meets Wow Duran Duran or or Steve they were like totally new romantic relook Wow but the music is totally Devo. Listen to the song "Food Fight" or "Big Mac." Um, it's a trick of a rare.
0: I'm gonna put "Food Fight." This is I'm gonna play "Food Fight" right here. But yeah, that that photo you're talking about, that is amazing. I just it, it was such a weird time because you never heard this
1: record, you never no. heard of it.
0: Uh, well, of course, it failed miserably. It right,
1: it didn't work. It, like it was like pretty much the death knell of the Village People's career. Right, it, it, Neil Young's new wave album didn't work. It it you know. It, it, it just didn't work when, when when all these artists tried to try on this new dress, and, uh, you know, a, a lot of hilarious uh, things ensued, especially the Village People of Food Fight, also in their song Big Mac. Um, it, it's just, it sounds like they're doing Devo, but they're trying to look like Spandau Ballet, and
0: Steve Strang, uh, they're $10 good-looking $10. guys you know they gotta they gotta they gotta have the hair right but was when did you like stop listening to devo when did you feel like this isn't speaking to me anymore in terms of their output
1: i never stopped listening to devo in fact when i kind of got into hardcore in and all that mm-hmm. i joined a band formed a band really um uh, and uh my first thing was like, Yeah, we gotta do a Devo cover. And we covered Uncontrollable Urge. Um, so even during like hardcore, I was still flying the Devo flag high. Me too. And I didn't lose it. I mean I mean, to me, the band after the fourth album, I became a little maybe less interested in. Yeah. And then uh I seeked out their music, their unreleased music, where uh yeah that's amazing through tape and so forth i got all that stuff that would be later released as hardcore devo yeah. or whatnot um you know there was a couple bootlegs that were pretty well distributed yes the there time. were i think one of them was called men who make the music actually and it had a lot of that it had a lot of that uh, early stuff on it that would be later re-released as, as hardcore devo or whatnot yeah and then once i heard that stuff i'm like Okay, that's even more next level than the stuff they did in their basement.
0: Oh my God, it's upsetting. Chango and things and, like that. Yeah, yeah, it's incredible. I go down the river with my laser beam.
1: Yeah. I'm a tater top. <laughs> yeah. And I'm so damn mad. Deb.
0: I was also in a Devo cover band uh, with Sam Coombs from Aquasi and Elliot Smith and my brother. Oh, wow. And we were fanatical. Like, because I knew every, I was like, Elliot, you gotta move this way, and then you gotta pivot with that foot with costume changes and everything. So it never left me either. I think Oh No, It's Devo was the last album I kind of liked. By the time Shout came yeah. out, it was all sequencers. And Alan, Alan Myers, who's such an amazing drummer, was really. Right put out to pasture it was all they were super yes. into drum machines and sequencers but the music
1: video they did for uh experienced uh, the Hendrix cover are you experienced was quite good it's incredible um, and that's the best good.
0: thing on the record if, if they had kind of embraced a sound like that that was kind of heavy and kind of sure. had like some hip-hop production on it like really heavy beats on it and distorted beats um it was that i thought was really successful
1: Interesting to note, uh, you're talking about being up there in the Pacific Northwest and having a Devo cover band. You know, when I met Kurt Cobain, somehow maybe Devo came up. And, you know, we sort of bonded on on this Devo thing, and then, like a few years later, uh, they would release a compilation record where they covered the B side to "Whip It."
0: Yeah, "Turnaround,"
1: which is a, a real obscure Jerry song, and someone like. Cobain picking up on that. It goes to show you that there was real heavy influence, influential thing that went on there. And while most of it really kind of maybe went under the radar or in the case of artists trying to adopt their sound, leading to complete commercial disasters for artists like Neil Young and the Village People, it still was all a part of this Influence that was going on with with Devo, and if you got it, you got it, and once you got it, that was it. You were you were kind of infected.
0: That's a good way to put it. Also, you could find their records in like drugstores because they were on Warner Brothers. They had amazing distribution. I used to like buy a lot of my records at a drugstore. It was like one of the few places I could get them, and they didn't know what they were bringing in. They're like. Kiss, Devo, Cheap Trick, Donna Summer. It was just like, we're just picking it out. We don't have no idea. And so I think for a lot of people, it was the first accessible way to find something like this, the satisfaction video. Right. We're only on the satisfaction video. That satisfaction video seemed like spaz attack in it um did you ever right did you ever see him around did you ever meet spaz attack
1: early on in the la punk scene it's 76 77 i would have been all of 12 and 13 right. and i didn't get up to hollywood i was too young okay I'd, i at the same time i wasn't going to rock concerts i wasn't going to go see queen or pink floyd or led zeppelin although i would have loved to but i just couldn't get to it. I didn't have any older siblings. I didn't have any friends that drove. I didn't have any way to get there. Uh, Yeah, until you know, I got involved in in the LA punk hardcore scene, which at that point, I was 16. And I had friends that drove and like we could, you know, we could go up to the whiskey a go go or the Starwood, the Starwood where Devo played an awful lot in, in 77 78 79. Uh, which is a club that I live across. Well, it's no longer there. It's
0: been torn down. And
1: it's now a strip mall, but I've lived across the street from that now for 31 years.
0: What was like one of the first Starwood or underground shows that you got to see when you were that age?
1: Well, I went from Devo being my first real concert uh, to seeing the Dickies, or maybe it was the Go-Go's at the Whiskey-A-Go-Go in a club setting, which uh-huh. is a totally different environment than seeing a show at the Santa Monica Civic, which, you know, at the time, even though a place like the Civic's only, what, 2,000, 2,500, maybe 3,000 capacity, till, to me, as a child, that was massive. That was just huge. and Yeah. You know, really, not, really not a huge venue like The Form or, or whatnot, other big places in town the first club shows i saw would have been like yeah dickies Go Go's, go boingo okay the cramps the gun club
0: amazing yeah so many shows
1: in in 1981 when i go back i i still have ticket stubs that i saved and uh i just look at them and like you know it's got the price on them. And it's like, yeah, $4 and 50 cents.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: You're, you're, you're seeing the circle jerks, the whiskey you're seeing, you know, seeing the dead Kennedys and the flipper at the whiskey. And, uh, half the time I didn't even pay to get in. I would just sneak in the back door or I would go early on and hide out in the bathroom. I remember wall of voodoo was playing and, I had just gotten their first EP that was released, and I oh, was success. So, so good. and uh, I went down, you know, didn't have any money, living taking taking the bus up from Santa Monica and uh, into West Hollywood to go catch, you know, Wall of Voodoo soundcheck, and then hiding out in the bathroom till showtime, <laughs> which I did. And
0: uh, yeah, so those were all ages venues, the Starwood and things like that. Starwood was the whiskey, was yeah, okay, those
1: were all of they I didn't did. know that, and um, yeah, I mean, I was years away from being 21 at that point, right? Um,
0: yeah, so that's kind of amazing that LA had still that going. There was an amazing club
1: scene here in that era, and there were so many bands and bands that uh, managed to sort of stay together from the original LA punk wave, like that were still in business, like the Alley Cats and the Plugs and uh, so many, some many of these bands I, I got to see. But you know, I, I, yeah, I didn't see them a few years previously because I was too young, and, but I saw most
0: of them. Did you make it to New Wave Theater at all? To Oh Theater yeah, I was, some,
1: I was at some filmings of New Wave Theater. Oh
0: my God, what was that like?
1: It was weird. And <laughs> I remember I was at this place called the Florentine Gardens, which... Okay. It was a, 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 they had lots of shows there, like Dead Kennedys had played shows there okay. and, and uh, so forth, 999 and the Circle Jerks. Uh, but like I remember going, I think I watched in one night, uh, Social Distortion and the Circle Jerks in the Fear wow. being filmed for that show. Uh, of course, these were all bands that I was seeing at the time right. in, in even much more smaller venues. Uh,
0: and so what year yeah. did the We Got Power compilations come out then?
1: Uh, the only one that we were involved with was the first one, Okay, Party uh, You Go Home, and that would have been 1982 or 83.
0: That was a totally essential compilation.
1: That was sourced from the fanzine that we were doing. We got Power. We had bands sending uh, their tapes, and uh, I sequenced that record. I put it together.
0: It's phenomenal. that was a really big deal for uh someone like me amongst
1: hardcore compilations though that record really stands out as totally. something else. It's different
0: I mean, yeah, it's
1: a lot weirder. It's got a lot more varied music totally It's got the Minutemen on it and the big boys and it's not just thrash but it's also got weird things like the Romulans, which is very devo sounding bands like the Nip drivers love them Dalow abortions and the yep. Red Cross, of course.
0: Yeah, it was definitely, you weren't, it, this wasn't like a maximum rock and roll comp. This was like something else.
1: It had, it had a fair
0: amount of thrash on it. Yeah, but it, but I mean, you know, like, again, the Minutemen were just, again, another band that like just totally changed right. my DNA.
1: Right. We're talking something
0: special. We're not talking about Devo anymore. Well, I know, I know. Okay, so satisfaction. Well,
1: I mean, there's, there's a
0: lot to talk about. I mean. Satisfaction. We're back to satisfaction. Satisfaction. Where does this stand in terms of, like, favorite videos or moments?
1: The satisfaction video is pretty classic. It's great. It just has, again, General Boy is in it. Mark's dad is in it. And, like, there's a shot I just always remember where he's, like, in the backseat of a car with a girl and he's, trying to make out with her and the dad turns around and just like uh oh, uh oh, uh oh, uh oh, oh, no 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 you know like uh stuff like that like uh you know when you're a kid and you're hitting puberty uh, really good timing on that. Yes. you know being a being a bit younger being maybe the next generation younger down from Jerry and Mark being 10-15 years younger
0: right.
1: um being 14 years old when that first got exposed to me. Just wow, you know?
0: Yeah, because there's sexual frustration in it. Mm -hmm. Like everyone's trying to like make out and the parents are basically busting them in a classic rock and roll fashion. But then counterpoints with Boogie Boy in a playpen with a toaster and a fork.
1: That is one of the most memorable images that they created. Absolutely. In in a sense, because it's just like, I think that's the thing that most remember, people remembered seeing. If they happened to catch those films at the concert, uh, like, yeah, you know, he sticks a fork in a toaster
0: and, <laughs> and fries, and fries himself. himself. Yeah, has a seizure, an electrical seizure in the playpen.
1: During a part of the song where the song is just going, you know, bonkers.
0: And if you don't know what Budgie Boy is yet, right, if this is your introduction to this character all of a sudden, this adult stuffed baby in this thing, it's really a hard hard thing to take because you're like, what's going on here? Who is? What's going on? It's just full of amazingly sophisticated and upsetting imagery.
1: (laughs) It was a little prior to my experimentation with psychedelics, Devo Uh was, but like clearly so much of their stuff was informed by Psychedelia,
0: I think. I've never thought about that. What, uh, what do you, what do you mean? I mean, just in a way, I don't know. Like, no, I, I'm interested. I remember the first time I took acid.
1: I just kept listening to shrivel Up" over and over again, and just, just the sounds in it. It sounded like the auditory hallucinations one experiences under the influence of LSD. And, uh, and God, uh, "Duty Now for the Future" just sounded amazing. Um, <laughs>
0: Yeah, that was Ken Scott who did all that Bowie stuff. Yeah, right.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. The 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 production on the record is just notably, like, stepped up. For yeah. Sure. I like you know, all those early records equally.
0: I don't... They're all great in their own way. They're yes. all... They're all different, too. They're different. Yeah. Like, here's a band that's evolving, and yeah.
1: they're they continue to evolve as they're devolving. So yes, go figure.
0: When you were young and you were hearing about de-evolution, what did that mean to you? What did you think about that? Because it's kind of a concept that's ramped up now in terms of truth.
1: You know, they were right about everything. And
0: of course, when I was super young, I didn't fully,
1: I understood it. They just, you know, it was, I understood that their whole thing was just like, mankind has gone as far as it possibly can go. And now we're we're regressing. We're going backwards. Uh, Something like Mike Judge's film, Idiocracy, where it comes out a decade and a half before Trump. And it's just like, you know, we're dealing with someone that was a a seer, that that could see the future. Devo are seers. Devo could see the future. And sadly, they were right about all of it.
0: Yeah, that's why I'm kind of amazed that they even cracked through in any capacity um, in terms of, like, they're this weird art film <laughs> collective that broke onto Warner Brothers with costumes and films and theatricality and, you know, weird ideas about um, culture and, and and having their own fan club that was so different. They They never even in their interviews uh were always really on point and really kind of wanted to educate mm-hmm. you know it'd be really easy for david letterman to kind of make fun of what they were wearing but they would kind of stand their ground and be like no this is this is what this is for and this is who we are
1: Right. it it was intellectual behind all the 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 kind of cheap gags and yes. uh In things, there was real ideas that were there that were undisputable that that, uh, formed their base. But at the same time, they always had a sense of humor about it. I mean, they had a sense of humor about the end of the world. And, you know, I think that's a really good way to look at it.
0: Yeah, even in their early art they were making in college, it was definitely like they were making like pamphlets about this stuff. I think they had a book called My Struggle that, that was a boogie boy, you know, with like collage art and religious fanaticism ideas and just gibberish and half-truths and um, kind of spelling out the whole thing. It's kind of remarkable that, that, that they, these ideas that they came up through this artistry, they really kept in their imagery and their lyrics and their identity all the way till now.
1: I just realized something i did not go to art school or film school but in a sense i did through proxy as diva was my proxy and diva went to college for me amazing That that's where that's where <laughs> that's where i was schooled
0: well there's a great line after satisfaction they general boys talking again and they show this woman painting in a beret and a, sh- and a smock and then there's a bar band playing in the background <laughs> and general boy goes artists and performers are usually good-looking guys and gals who couldn't hold a real job entertainment is sometimes the excuse by which these perpetuate their selfish hoax i ask all of you to join devo's efforts to correct this situation from the inside out i just it that has never appeared in anything else except this videotape But I love that 17 seconds of just like them putting their finger on art and music.
1: I remember uh, by the late 80s, uh, finally actually getting to meet the band and hang out with them and go out to eat with them and go to Mark Mother's boss house. And I remember Mark saying it to me at the time in those short words that artists are just nice people that can't hold down real jobs. And I'm just like, yep, you got me. <laughs> you got me. Uh, yeah, sort of, sort of repurposing what no doubt he wrote for his dad to say in that film. Yeah. What, what a sad world it would have been without that, uh, you know. I mean, even with all the great music that exists, uh, it still would have been less without Devo's vision and, And what they did
0: to make a time life video cassette of a 55 minute part live performance, but mostly music videos and special weird little setups and theatrical scenes that they're they're doing through is I just don't know. I'd never heard of anyone else doing something that ambitious
1: I wonder how they got hooked in with Time Life. That seems like a strange marriage. At that time, Warner Brothers made it happen. Yeah, it's
0: it's part of Time Life was part of Warner Brothers, and so. But the fact of them basically being like, "Hey, we we can make content for you. It's music, you know." And they're they're probably like, "Great, we need we need this is a new industry. We need stuff. We need content." But for them to deliver this thing which is such a slap in the face of the people who are putting it out, I think is incredible. They're so fearless in terms of being like, yeah, we don't like you, and we know you don't get us, and you think that we're this joke band in these yellow outfits, and you see dollar signs when we're not doing that. And I like that it's just such a great middle finger to a major label corporation. While still using it and in a funny way, you mentioned Kurt Cobain and I feel like Kurt kind of used the same thing. You know, he tried to basically be like, we're part of this thing, but we are, it's a total middle finger to it too. And we are going to be disruptors and, uh, and we're going to do things our own way and I hate it, but it's part of what I am, you know?
1: And then there's uh, some people that would try to say Diva weren't a punk band or Nirvana aren't a punk band. Right. Totally missing all of this.
0: Whew. Yeah. They obviously never saw Nirvana in a club like destroyed. Right. Like they were they were very punk, you know?
1: I'm so bored with the whole that whole conversation but like yeah, I still have to hear it what is and what isn't punk. You know, there's nothing more punk rock than than Debo. Let's just leave it at that and move yeah, on.
0: That sounds great.
1: Have we how far have we gotten into this discussion? On we're our, pretty
0: close now that we're into Secret Agent Man.
1: Secret Agent Man. Okay. Yeah. We've got the band. Looks like they're trying to rehearse, right? They're they're at their <laughs> their 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 studio, which looks to be uh this industrial <laughs> setting, some old looks could have been like a power plant or something who knows what what it was and they're wearing like overall worker overalls obviously like real actual work overalls not anything they made but like went down to the Circle store and purchased. totally
0: it. industrial wear
1: but but they're but they're offsetting it by wearing these frightening clear plastic face masks that distort their faces underneath it and conform their faces to these kind of horrifying Masks. They're uh, really
0: masks. upsetting.
1: Yeah. And <laughs> again, the masks. What is it about a mask that, I don't know. I mean, in the 70s, masks seemed to be a really big part of Halloween. You no. Know, Halloween these days, we don't really, it's a different world. We really don't see these masks anymore than the way that we did in the 20th century. For some reason, sure,
0: the plastic. Foam, right. Yeah. The, the cheap the cheap
1: mask that you could buy at the, the dime store that were plastic face or whatever. But then like then some of these more of just they got them from weirder sources than the dime store. Who knows? But uh
0: Yeah, there was that stuff you could get in the back of like famous Monster magazine where it'd be like melting face. And you would it would be like a dollar twenty nine and then you'd get it and it would be nothing like the picture and be even weirder. It seems like they had a really amazing collection of rubber masks and, um, like, kind of plastic hard masks.
1: Yeah. There's a picture in my new book uh, that I included from our very same trip to the Grand Canyon to work on Steve's film back in 89. and It's a picture of uh, Steve Doughton and Steve Horton, and they're wearing these frightening masks that were actually made from photographs of people's faces. Sort of like, almost like what Leatherface did, uh-huh. uh, uh, where it's like superimposing a face on a face, and uh, uh, I just,
0: yeah. Amazing. I just thought I would throw that out there. Yeah, congrats on the book and the, and the exhibition. I'll put in the show notes, uh, I'll put links to all of where people can get all your stuff too.
1: It was very satisfying to, to produce this book because... I got to pull stuff from almost 50 years of, of work. Here's the photo I'm talking about. I you can cut this out of the show because
0: this is visual. No, used. I totally remember that. Yeah. That was an amazing trip. And that's totally Devo yeah. inspired. Absolutely. Yeah. We would drive around with those masks on. And Steve, Steve
1: and I's friendship was so much based in Devo, too, uh, I think. <sighs>
0: Yeah, I remember going to see when they reformed in 88 or whatever. We went together. We all went together to see them. And we were wearing those masks in the audience. <laughs> and I remember <laughs> Bob, one oh, play- Bob one playing guitar and looking out. And then he just smiled and pointed like, oh, weirdos. Like we what? were sweating so much having to wear that from getting to the show till before it went on. So when they went on, it was like we were a mess. Best commitment. Yes. It's true. No one else uh, dressed up for it. And I remember Greg right. Gallant, the person I played music with, had, had made a lab coat that said puke punk on each sleeve in green letters. And you just made your own shit. And you went to a Devo show. You know.
1: Yeah. That's, you know, there's just something about that era of, I don't know, late 70s where to me it's just in a sense there's so much innocence there especially yes. a young teenager picking up on this notion of punk and it's just like before anyone really knows what what is up but like this there's something really i don't know maybe because i relate to it so much through my own story that, yeah. that i don't know you look at a movie like dennis hopper's the 1980 film out of the blue sure um, it it it, it it, it depicts that very well. Right. Um, you know.
0: And so when you heard the different version of Secret Agent Man that was on this thing, it's radically different than the Duty Now for the future.
1: Definitely record like a home studio recording versus probably a four track, right? Yes. Probably like yeah. Maybe even a cassette recording. Who knows what they were using uh, to record their stuff, but certainly not Ken Scott, you know. No,
0: Bob, Bob, Mother's Bob, Bob One is singing it got some really great cutaways like you know like you mentioned before the the kind of disco guy dancing with the weird mask and them paddling somebody with another weird mask like monkeys paddling like something
1: yeah monkeys spanking an overweight woman you know who's also wearing a mask i think we see kennedy at the end of it right
0: kennedy is at the very end but on the paddles yeah. i
1: think it's nixon okay And we've seen Boogie Boys in in, in a mask is in the video, too.
0: Yeah, playing synthesizer. Yeah. Yeah. And there's some great stuff where they show, like, kind of a rock star guy playing, like, a multi-necked guitar, like, well, flash photography is going off around him. These weird little cutaways, again, Chuck Statler was so good, he'd be like, we'll put up an orange-colored cardboard backdrop, and we're going to shoot in front of it with really flat lighting. Okay, we got that. Now we're going to put a purple backdrop of cardboard behind it, and we're going to use the same lighting, and we're going to do the, these cutaways. That's the thing that I really took away from Chuck's work is his use of color, really strange cutaways that aren't part of the song, that aren't part of the that aren't part of the band.
1: Right? It's amazing because there was no nothing to compare it to at the time. There was no music videos. There was, right. there was this such thing. That in, in in a way, he pioneered the whole format
0: he now is comfortable enough to say I'm the Godfather of the music video because he was doing all that stuff for stiff records like Elvis Costello and Rockpile and mm-hmm. Madness you know later did the cars and the time you know when he started when MTV first came all around but these things were being made and there again there was nowhere for them to be shown what do you do with a 1979 madness video like what do you do? you know, with One Step Beyond. It's not going to be played on American television. It might be played once in the UK. In the middle of the
1: night, yeah.
0: The fact that, that these labels, these little independent labels early on were like, Let's make a bunch of these. We don't know what we're going to do with them yet. And the fact that, you know, Chuck ended up making eight or I think he made eight or nine Elvis Costello videos and could make Elvis Costello never look bored in his videos was it's kind of incredible. Like Elvis Costello, he just always seemed with Chuck to um, really be alive in his videos. Chuck, I think, brought something out of him. Where he'd be like, all right, we're gonna stop here. You go in this field, lip sync, and run towards me. All right, now we're gonna go in this hallway, the hotel hallway. Now you're gonna fall down here. Now we're gonna. You have to have a, a comfortable enough relationship with someone that they trust you to know that they're gonna deliver. But also, when you're when you're in a band, you also have to be like, okay, I'll do whatever you say. You have to kind of trust someone. And I think Chuck got great performances out of people as well as non-actors, musicians and non-actors.
1: I think that leads us to the Comeback Johnny video, which is the last music video that appears on this thing. Um, And famously enough, this was filmed at the Roxy on the Sunset Strip. Oh, okay. Uh, And populated by the L.A. punk scene at the time, including Darby Crash, you can see him. Okay. Pretty... I don't even think he was Darby Krasin. I think he was still Bobby Penn. Uh, Helen Keller, Bill Bartell. Wow. Who's who someone that I'm presently working on a documentary film about.
0: Oh, you're doing a White Flag?
1: Bill, It's Bill's story. Amazing. It's not a White Flag documentary, but it's a, it's about Bill Bartell. But White Flag's part of the story. That's yeah.
0: incredible. I'm really excited about that, Dave.
1: been working on that for a couple of years already. Who knows when... We'll be done with it, but uh, well, Howie Pyro was also in the music video, and that's where like Bill and Howie first met. Wow. Um, rest in
0: peace, both of them. Yeah, amazing. So was it a like a, a like an open call? Like we're going to be doing this video? And... Yeah, it
1: was. It was just like come on
0: down and be in a depot video. So. <laughs> that's amazing. I didn't know that was shot in L.A.
1: Again again, just about a year or two before my time of coming out of the scene. But right. uh or else I would have been there. But uh you know, in nineteen seventy eight or seventy-nine when this was filmed, I yeah. would have had no way to get there. And the same place where they film rock and roll high school, you know, and also Jobby Crash is quite prominent in yes in that in that as well. So he was like being a punk extra really early on.
0: It's a rare Devo look that they only Wear in this video, which I think they look great in, which is this cowboy, right? Black yeah. black outfit, cowboy look is pretty awesome. They look great in it. Again, every song, every music video, they had to have a different
1: getup. Yeah, it was it was about outfitting it, uh, you know, for the track and the cowboy thing. Who would have guessed it would have worked with Debo.
0: Yeah, and they cut to having. these three elderly cowboy gentlemen bowling. It's like kind of the cutaway in it, but it's, it's basically a live performance video, which they really yeah. didn't have one up to that point.
1: Trying to capture the energy of their live show, which was like Incredible. the thing that they really had going at the time. So yeah. I could see, you know, I could see why they would do that.
0: It captures it so well. Maybe
1: even the label encouraged them, said, you know, yeah. we, we've got to get you, we got to do something to try. that's got to try to get the, live energy of of your performances
0: it is an amazing performance like mark you know crawls out into the audience and gets just like devoured it's it's so sweaty so hyper so energized you know sometimes i mean you've made videos for a lot of bands it's sometimes hard to get that energy across you know you're like oh i want you to feel what i'm feeling yeah, you can
1: only really get it in, in a real setting of being live. Some some music videos I did, I actually did that technique where I had the band playing live, even though they were lip syncing to the track. Like, for example, for a Firehose uh, video that I shot, I I had them playing in a club, and they kept playing the song over and over again. It was a cover of uh, Wires, a mannequin. Right. And, uh, but that, that's how I shot... That thing, and that's the same thing that Devo did with "Comeback Johnny."
0: Yeah, I I love "Comeback Johnny." It's one of my favorite songs, and such. Again, when I was younger, hearing it, it was upsetting because it's just like car crash, and you know, like it's just them turning the the like rock and roll '50s tragedy rock and roll track on its head.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the day the music the day the music died. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah
1: but bye-bye, Miss American Pie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: A little faster.
1: <laughs> you know, his music is the antithesis of, of, of uh, I don't know, that whole 70s James Taylor sound. We got to talk about Alan Myers, and and his drumming, to me, made the band work on every level. And Agreed. And, um, what an incredible drummer. What an inventive drummer. What an insanely hard-hitting drummer. If you look at, you know uh, some of the live video clips that are out there you'll see uh crazy and like i can never i'm a drummer myself well i became a drummer mm-hmm. in 81 uh because my band needed a drummer and uh i forever tried to figure out alan meyer's drum parts and being self-taught and not even being schooled in music you know i had i had a bit of a curve to get over but i i can never figure out like the, the drum part for for satisfaction. Oh my and funny enough, when I was out on the road with Nirvana, um, uh, one of the first things that Dave Grohl does, he sits down at his drums during sound check and he plays the fucking pattern for satisfaction of the drum. Pattern. I was just like, <laughs> ah, there you go. I you know, for the life of me, that's like you know, rubbing your belly and patting your head and switching it. Totally. It's just like it, you have to have. Two minds working at the same time, yeah. Um, it's even it's even more than different than having like independence of, of movement of limbs and timing and and so forth. Uh,
0: oh, he's incredible! Just wow. Yeah, yeah. The, the fact that you know you listen to the hardcore Devo stuff that they were doing when they were in college before they met Alan, and it's really it's very sludgy and slow and. And very mm-hmm. fascinating and complicated in its own way. It's like they meet Alan and all of a sudden they're just up the speed. They're like a real band and they're they're tight for the first time. And they can rely on him to do these incredible patterns that allow them to really, you know, bring the musical language to Devo and to a much clearer focus.
1: Yeah, he's not playing the drum parts of anyone that was a drummer before him. He's not, totally. you know, he, he's, he's laying down something that's completely different and unique, which makes Devo's music different and unique as well. And in addition to, you know, the, the songwriting, it's just, yes, the musicality that, that is there. There's no, there's no denying that.
0: No doubt. Yeah. He was amazing. And, and the minute that he started playing less of a role, like around new Traditionalists. He was just playing these electronic drums that were doing a lot of trigger work, right?
1: Right. Funny enough, the early Devo was all electronic drums. So
0: Yeah, totally. Yeah. I, I could feel myself pulling away an in interest a little. And I don't I didn't even think about it till now that how much I think Alan's just the propulsiveness, the energy yeah. of it, the inventiveness of it. Because when I heard Devo's satisfaction, I had never heard the Rolling Stones version in my life For to really? that point. So wow. when I heard the Stones version like a year or two later, it was completely foreign to me because to me, I I knew it was a cover, wow. but I didn't know that it was not the same song, really. Right. It's not based in it. And so for me, I was like, whoa, like and the only other time in my life that happened was hearing the residents do Papa's Got a Brand New Bag before I heard James Brown's version because it just wasn't being played. The residents also did Satisfaction. Yeah, exactly. A really upsetting version. <laughs> a very
1: different version of it, too. Yeah, it's but, incredible. But,
0: great. Yeah, it's 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 fascinating to hear you as a drummer talk about, Ellen because every song, again, like them reinventing the wheel for each song in terms of the movement and the style and what they're going to do, alan never played the same thing twice on a track every song in terms of the drum pattern and the idea is mm-hmm. completely like we're racing the board and i'm going to do something completely different with it and i think that's so impressive it's
1: conceptual too it, it, it's it's
0: i can't relate
1: it to any other drummer
0: no me either no he is incredible and i guess later in his life he was like a home electrician and was doing that wiring and stuff like that. That's
1: always good.
0: Yeah. Then we get to there's this little sequence after Comeback Johnny where Kalva goes, Wahoo, Wahoo with a robot synthesizer voice over it, which again, I loved. I just thought it was so funny.
1: I think they just took the word Yahoo, like Yahoo, and put it backwards. Yeah. It's just That's probably right. Back, like, like the human voice backwards. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And then they have that great sequence of little babies drooling while they say, are we not men? We are Devo. Just think, all those babies
1: in that video are now, <laughs> know. you know, pushing their mid-late 50s.
0: Yeah, they're probably all hedge fund managers or something really evil. But I wanted to talk what your experience was with seeing Mark come out as Boogie Boy at the end of that first show you saw. Like, what was your visceral it's a total pushback on the audience. If you have no context of what that is or the story.
1: I was aware of Boogie Boy before I saw him live. I'd seen photos, so it wasn't like a shock or anything. Uh-huh. And I realized that it was, you know, I knew right away that it was Mark in a mask. Right. Uh, but, um, again, uh, it's just part of the show. You know, the show's coming down. You know, the show's winding down when they bring out Boogie Boy. It's, yeah. He's making his, he's bringing it to its conclusion.
0: Uh, and sometimes he'd do a ballad, words get stuck in my throat, which you could get on a lot of big right. legs. Um, it was just like a really lovely thing. But then he'd have like a coughing fit for like a minute and a half, you know? Yeah. Because the words are stuck in his throat, you know? It's like they couldn't even do the ballad thing.
1: I think they got the idea <laughs> for doing covering that song around the time that they were filming human highway because uh dean stockwell's involvement in that and and uh somehow i think maybe they they happen to uh or not dean stockwell sorry russ tamblin russ tamblin both who which worked with david lynch
0: yes Uh, dr jacoby
1: yeah um again maybe no mistake they're involved but uh i think that like during the the making of that like in that era, I know it started showing up in their live sets at, around that time. Okay. So it would make sense that that, uh, that came that came together through their time working on Neil Young's Human Highway.
0: And then they end the concert thing with Boogie Boy saying, oh, we're all Devo. We're all Devo. They have the credit sequence with these little things with Mark being like, they got those recombo DNA labs. They're putting donkey heads on man's bodies. They can do that now. They can do that. My my favorite saying in the whole thing, though, is Mark goes, "You try to get the corner seat in the restaurants, but you can't always get them." And then it that's it. That's the end of Devo talking.
1: What you just said about trying to get the corner seat in the restaurant that shows up in the lyric of "Turnaround."
0: Oh yeah, and
1: funny enough, uh, Cobain gets the words wrong because I guess. When Nirvana uh, did their cover of that song, there was no internet around to, to look up <laughs> lyrics. So Cobain hears it as "You go for that crazy-sounding restaurant," <laughs> but what the actual lyric is is "You go sit in that corner seat in the restaurant." Uh, you know, and they're, t- they're going to try to get behind you. Don't let them do it.
0: That's right. They have a talking part in it. That's right. That's yeah, absolutely. Yeah, right. I've never thought about that. Right. Yeah, and, and so,
1: again, they they use all of their isms, and they reuse them, right. and they appear later, and they they come back. Like, thematically, they were sort of reusing this stuff, and of course, you know, you'd have to be a, a total super fan to even notice any of this stuff, but here comes out my devo
0: nerdiness. I can't help it, <laughs> but... <too>. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there's a lot
1: to be nerdy about. I
0: yeah, mean, they were obsessed with advertising and slogans and right. political campaigns, and and you know, and that leads into the final thing, which is the Devo corporate anthem, which is uh, the first track on the "Duty Now for the Future," an instrumental track. And if you haven't seen the video, it's great. It's just basically Devo standing in in unison with wind blowing through their hair while they're wearing their duty now for the future leisure wear at the time with these bubble eyed glasses on and then when the song hits the middle and there's a symbol they just raise their hand into salute and i believe they would play this at the end of the concerts too to kind of be like this is the farewell the
1: national the national anthem it was like yeah like they're they're declaring their their band as a country and they're being they're showing their patriotism to the evolution
0: But I love that it's a corporate anthem. They're like, it's the Devo corporate anthem, not the Devo anthem, not the new new song for Devo. It's like because it's
1: being released on Warner Brothers. Of course, it's corporate. Yeah, and
0: they loved playing into that. They're like, yeah, Yeah. we are an we are a corporation. We're Club Devo. It's a really fun world that they created. It's all
1: conceptual. Yeah, it's just uh, the the concepts have concepts. I went and I reviewed a bunch of. Music videos that that are actually a part of this uh, complete truth about the evolution, which is really the redo, the redoing of men who make the music. It contains so much of the same material. There's this sequence with Rod Rooter and Donut Rooter, Donut Rooter being Lorraine Newman, who was romantically involved with Mark Mothersbaugh at the time, and just so happened to be a neighbor. To my friend's father, my friend being Joe Cole and his father being actor Dennis Cole. Uh, And that's how I first got to uh, meet uh, Mark and Devo uh, at the time. But, anyways, there's this scene where Rod Reuter is talking to uh, Donut, who comes in begging to hear some Devo and see some Devo. And of course, Rod's just like, You don't want to hear that garbage. Here, take a look at this. It's the lead singer of my mega metal band, The Evil Clowns. And it cuts to a photo of David Lee Roth, obviously taking a stab at Van Halen, their label mates, and major competition over there at Warner's. So, uh, But the thing is, Donut responds, looking at the picture of David Lee Roth, turns her nose up and goes,
0: El Vomito. <laughs> so great. Yes, it's amazing. Especially, like, you know, again, you couldn't escape Van Halen.
1: No. You could not escape Van Halen, and, and they were like the the the, the band for, for the moment for the late 70s yeah. in Southern California culture. Uh, the Van Halen fans that I watched that Diva with on Saturday Night Live were totally threatened by Devo and hated them. Yeah. And, uh, you know, this is why these through lines work. Yes. This is why, you know, you got someone taking a stab at someone like I me. Mean, David Lee Roth is great. Van Halen is great. Don't get me wrong. I have, I have an appreciation for them. But they certainly were not important to me in, in the way that Devo was informing, informing me at, at, at such an early age.
0: And, yeah. Well, and as much as you might think, like, maybe the members of Van Halen would have liked something like Devo, a lot of their fans did not.
1: Well, yeah, there it was just culture war right there. Totally. It's just like, the, this was the enemy. Like, yes. They were the enemy, and they viewed us as the enemy. And Absolutely.
0: Was... People were scared of what this music represented.
1: And the media was so scared. People were scared because the media was telling them to be afraid. and the media was putting out these sensationalistic reports and, of course, totally missing the mark and not getting it. But spreading disinformation, I see so much of that today. Uh, it's all Devo. All Devo. weird, <laughs> all Devo.
0: Yes. Well, I think it, it's been a, a common thread from talking to people that there's something that about discovering something that is a ground zero moment for you
1: right that's why when you asked me what i wanted to do uh, i mean I, i just know there's a lot of stuff to talk about here so
0: they were again multimedia oriented and for somebody like myself who worked you know at a media arts center and then made music videos and then also was a musician and then opened a video store for 22 years There's something about their aesthetic and the way that they had this perverse little rascals mentality of like, let's scrape together a few bucks and make a video. Let's do this. Let's do this. Let's call our friends in and do it. I see the direct through line from their work to your work and your influence in my life and Steve Downton's life and other people. And I'm just so excited that I've got to talk to you.
1: I think this is the first time ever that I've discussed this. I feel like I'm now out of of the Devo closet.
0: That's amazing, Dave. That's so great. (laughs) There you go. At the end of every interview, I ask the same question, but I I tailor it depending on the uh, subject. So on a scale from one to 10 with one being the lowest and 10 being the highest, How many bubble-eyed dog boys down in the valley do you give Devo's video and film work?
1: I give them 10 out of 10 bubble-eyed dog boys. Plus, two thumbs up. Yes. From the dead
0: Siskel and Ebert from Beyond the Grave. Dave, I am so touched to talk to you about this. Devo has made such an imprint in us in terms of how we look at humor, and parody, and film, and music, and inspired us. Um, and was also, a, you know, a shield in terms of, like, identity. Like, we are Devo. Mm-hmm. It changed my life. It seemed, I'm really, it's seemed really. it been really fun to talk to somebody who it also changed their life. Big fan of everything you've done. I'm so excited about this Build documentary.
1: We're starting to work on a teaser trailer. Uh, so, hopefully... We'll get that
0: out soon. We'll put links to all of your work and the new book and everything. But so good to see you after all these years. Thanks again. And duty now for the future, sir. There you go. Thank you for listening to Revolutions Per Movie. We release new episodes every Thursday. And if you've enjoyed this, it would mean a lot to me if you would rate and review it on your favorite podcast app. The show is a completely independent affair. So the best way to support the show is through our Patreon at patreon.com slash revolutionspermovie, where you can get weekly bonus episodes and exclusive goods sent to you just for joining. You can also follow us on social media at revolutionspermovie, and find out more information about our various guests in the episode show notes. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. Bye!